I waited as long as I possibly could, hoping my voice would come back so I could bring you this, this week's episode. The voice is not back, but I have plenty to say on this week's episode of the Corey Act Show. I would argue that my immune system is one of the most efficient, one of the best there is. But I spent a great deal of last week in New York City on vacation. And my immune system, I think, is quite well attuned to the germs of the southeastern United States. I travel enough for work that it's not just attuned to the germs of the upstate of South Carolina. There's even, I think, some immunity for the entire southeast. But in New York City, all of the germs of the entire planet are there. So I've got something that my immune system was not ready for, and it has done this to my voice, and it has been worse. Your prayers are appreciated as I come to you right now. I'm miserable, miserably sick. And so uh, we we have a show to do, and so here we go. A lot I want to do, uh, one is from Ken Cusinelli. Uh, He's the guy from Virginia originally, who is now the immigration head for... The Trump administration got in trouble about uh, changing the Emma Lazarus poem on the Statue of Liberty. And I just came back from there, by the way. So when I was in New York City, part of what I did was go to Ellis Island and to the Statue of Liberty. If you follow along on Instagram or Facebook, you would have seen that. If you are not following along on Facebook or Instagram, you're making a terrible mistake. You should definitely do that. And so I have some thoughts on that. And then I've got, like, I got I to gotta commend you, the listener. Your questions and responses are starting to make the show to, to some extent you know I've had all the content for this episode ready for a while because I didn't have to come up with the content you did it for me with everything you're sending me I've just been waiting around for my voice to not sound like I was a dying decrepit 135 year old man and so uh, here we go with your questions after that uh, and I mean, I hope after your questions, because I got a good one about the year of Jubilee in the Bible, um, someone about holding up protest signs, if that's a good uh, strategy for Christians. Uh, I have a couple of things about capitalism and free markets. And then someone who wrote in last week sent me just the most gracious response. Like, I'm just so grateful for you guys, the listener. And I think I would like to cl- finish up the show talking about uh, this most recent set of shootings so that I can... Uh, give you some thoughts on that. So there's a lot to do on the show today, and if you can muscle through my terrible voice, I promise you I'll give you all the energy that I have in the moment that the show is over. I will pass out. That's what's going to happen. So how do we start the show? We start it with me. My name is Corey Truax. I am dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville, South Carolina, We'd love to have you there any given Sunday morning at 10.30. Let's start here. Kent Cuccinelli has gotten some fire. He has gotten some criticism for saying that the immigrants that the United States wants are the immigrants that can stand on their own two feet. And he went so far as to recast the famous poem that Emma Lazarus wrote that sits on the, the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. She wrote, give us your, your tired, your poor, your weak, your, I think it's heavy laden maybe, maybe I'm thinking of that with the Bible. I mean, admittedly, I'm doing the show on so many chemicals and drugs for this flu of mine that I God knows what I'm going to say. 
but you're tired, you're poor, you're weak, all that. And he says, give us your your people who could stand on their own two feet. Now, as I just came back from Ellis Island, which between, oh, I have so many thoughts here, they're jumbling in my flu-addled head. Let's start here. I've always really uh, resented folks on any part of the political spectrum, although this is typically those of the political left, who use the Statue of Liberty and the poem written thereon as a statement of law. I, mean, I, I hate to be a jerk. And I guess we all we all know. I don't actually hate being a jerk. I apparently relish it. So to be a jerk, poems aren't law, guys. That's just a poem. A person wrote a poem, and then some other people decided to put it on a statue, or actually on a pedestal, on a statue, and that's it. That's the end of the story. Congress didn't vote on the poem. It's not an Article 3, Section 2, Subset A of a law. Give us your tired, your poor, your weak. Isn't actually a law, it's a poem. And so it's not policy. Poems aren't policy. I can't believe I have to say that to adults in 2019. It's just a poem, guys. But moreover, the actual sentiment behind that. I just came from Ellis Island. And guys, I, I got to tell you, that, that's something you all need to do. I've been to New York City, I think it's four times, maybe five, now, five times now. And I've done all the tourist things, you know, the Empire State Building and doing One World Trade Center and the 9-11 Museum. Walked across the Brooklyn Bridge and seen a, uh, seen a show at the Minskoff Theater and did the Times Square thing. I could go on. I mean, a long, long list of New York City things. Went at Christmas and walked down Fifth Avenue with all those, and Madison Avenue with all those those lights and uh, did the Rockefeller Center and did the Top of the Rock and the Christmas Tree. And now I've done Statue of Liberty and the Ellis Island. And I think Ellis Island is the most interesting thing I've done in New York City, at least of the tourist things. I, I thought I would spend a, a lot of time on Liberty Island on this vacation. I probably spent two hours there and went through the museum and got up on the pedestal and it's got a great, great view of Manhattan. But when I got into Ellis Island and I was blown away. I, I was blown away by the story that this structure and this building tells us of the people who came here. And I, I tell you, if I, if I took one of the immigrants that I would have seen in some of these these displays at the museum now that that is Ellis Island, it had them here from Kim Cuccinelli say, "Give us your folks who can stand on their own two feet." They would they would be the ones raising their hands and saying, "Yes, that's me. I just need a chance. Where I am in this world, I don't have a chance." What I've heard of America is you're the place that will give me a chance. You're the place where I can just go to work. You're the place where I can find an employer, I can start my own business, and I can just make a living. I mean, I, I saw so many compelling things at that museum, but one of them was this quote. I, put, I took a picture of it. It's from an immigrant in 1907, a Polish immigrant saying, Quote, from the first minute that I got here, I realized that I am in a country where I am a free man. I have a fighting chance to make a living. That means everything. 
I didn't realize it as much as I do now, but at that time, it was a big thrill. He immigrated in 1907. He was being interviewed several decades later. But he, he came here recognizing something that was not true where he was. I've arrived at a place where I'm free. I now can go have that dangerous risk that is freedom. I can go work hard. I can use the talent and the ingenuity and the entrepreneurial spirit that I have, and I can go try to make a living. And I don't know how that's any different than what Ken Cuccinelli said. It's not even a, it's not a rational or even necessarily a moral thing to say, give us all of your people for us to take care of. That's, that's not an immigration policy that makes practical sense. It's also not an immigration policy that makes moral sense for those who already live in the country. Going back to Ellis Island, I remember seeing on those, again, I took pictures. This is a great thing about going to museums now with your phone. You can just take pictures of all these displays. That it was policy that if you get uh, convicted, not just arrested, but convicted of a crime within your first two years here, we're putting you on the boat back. We, we made it policy that if, if you came in and we're not working by a certain time, that we're, we're going to have to send you back because we can't just support you. It's not morally right for our people. It's not, it's not good to do that to the current citizens of the United States. It's not any animus we have towards you. It's that that's not a moral or rational thing to do in our system. Now, granted, I was going through Ellis Island, and they highlight a time where we needed a mass immigration. During a, a, te- a, a technological revolution right after uh, the, the 19th century, but, and then another big mass income after the Civil War where we killed each other like crazy. We needed a bunch of new people to come in. I was blown away that it's only 10% of people were turned away from Ellis Island. 10% of people turned away. 90% of the folks that came that wanted to come, we, we brought them in and sent them to all the, the big cities of the United States. But the ones that we sent back to their home countries, the ethic was what is best for the American citizen? We're not going to take a ward of the state on. We're not going to take take in someone who does not, does not actually benefit the country. And this goes back to something I said here recently when it comes to immigration systems. I am mostly for open borders. That's my heart. My heart is, I'm for people, man. I don't think Americans are all that much spe- are, are more special than Guatemalans or Hondurans or Mexicans. I don't think that our DNA makes us any better than they are. And so if there's a brilliant member of the United Arab Emirates that can get here and he's a great software engineer or he's got a great idea, I want him here and I want it to be easy for him to get here. Or if there's a, a, an awesome surgeon in Kenya who wants to come, man, bring that dude, let's, let's, or bring her, let's get it done. The, the issue is when you have a, wel- a welfare state like we do. And so you can't have open borders, you can't have people just coming in whenever they want if one of the things they can do is just get a bunch of benefits. This is why, partly why the, the Democratic candidates in their debates have been so rational, where they say things like, we, we want universal health care, which, by the way, side, side note, gets rid of your employer health care. So if you actually like your health insurance, 
you do lose it. It's outlawing the idea of health insurance to your employer. But when we say we want universal health care, universal health insurance, and then we say to the rest of the world, but in, in, we want to decriminalize crossing the border, what we're saying is just come. Just come and you'll have your, your treatments and your, your health care paid for. So, to, and that's not, a, that's not a logical thing to do. So to finish this segment, guys, I need you to stick with me. I know my voice is terrible, but I got a lot to say. I've been holding off as long as I could, and I just got a lot to do, and a lot from your questions as well. But for Ken Cuccinelli, who got in trouble for saying, give us your folks who can stand on your own two feet, I would say that to the entire human race around the world. Listen, if you can come and you can stand on your own two feet, I want you here, man. I want you here, ma'am. You're, you're, you're what makes America great is that you come and you take the challenge and the adventure of standing on your own two feet. We'll be back with more of the Corey Truax Show in just a minute. Coming to you from the very muddy mind of me, Corey Truax. It's glad to, glad to have you here today on the Corey Truax Show. If you're listening on his radio talk, 92.9, 91.9 as well or wherever you're listening to the podcast, thank you for doing so. The mind is muddy because I am treating some kind of godforsaken thing that's taking hold of my body, and it's just not good. Uh, so uh, just bless the Lord that you're not feeling like I feel today. This is the break where I typically encourage you to follow on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and I ask that you would do that. It's a, it's a good idea. You won't regret it uh, if you follow along there and tell someone else about the show. Speaking of you telling others about the show, I do want to go to some listener feedback now because I got some good ones. I want to start here. Stephen wrote in last week. He's the guy who said that I was overplaying how much of a bad person Donald Trump is, that he's not the worst person in politics. And Stephen wrote back something that just makes me want to be more like Stephen when I grow up. I mean, I know I'm old and I'm grown up, but the grace that he showed in this response. I want to read it to you verbatim because I tell you, this is, um, this is a heart I have. I have a heart for healthy disagreement. I think we're so bad at it as people. I've said many times on the show before, when I hear something I disagree with, I'm usually intrigued by it. But I find that most Americans, when they hear something that they disagree with, they get mad at it. And I want us to stop doing that. I want us to grow up. I want us to be a people that hear something we disagree with and we don't get angry but we instead engage with it. And so, if you remember last week, I got a little heated, and I, something I can't even do this week because I don't have the voice to get heated, talking through that message that Stephen sent me about m- my saying that Donald Trump was the worst person in all of politics. And so if you haven't heard that segment, go back and listen to it. Um, it's on the podcast wherever you find it. Here's what Stephen wrote back to me. Quote, I listened to your podcast and wanted to respond. Concerning your comments on health care, I am in complete agreement with your assessment. As for Trump, rather than argue and debate with each other's opinions about Trump, I would just say this. Would I vote Trump for the pastor of my church? No. But throughout the history of the Bible, God used some of the most unlikely people to do amazing things. I believe that God can use Trump just as easily as he used Moses or Paul. Uh, so there's a, I have agreement there. I just want to make sure anytime a, a Christian says that, Anytime a Christian says, I believe God can use Trump like he used any other wicked leader, I want to make sure that we do two things. 
that we recognize he is a wicked leader. So it's not that he's a righteous man. And God's using the righteous trump to do righteous things. So we, I want to make sure we're clear about his standing and his morality. And then second, that we're also clear that if Hillary Clinton would have won the election, God, God would have used her too for whatever purpose he wanted. God uses any governmental leader any way that he wants. He can use them for blessing and for cursing. I think he's used Donald Trump for blessing and he's used Donald Trump for cursing. He used Barack Obama. I'm sure, I mean, it's, i got to be honest, it's hard for me to find what the blessing was, but he used Barack Obama for some blessing and he used Barack Obama for some cursing. We have to be adults enough to recognize the nuances in these things. We have to be mature enough to recognize our political preferences and loyalties are, are so much lower in, in value than our, our loyalties to things that are eternal. It's frustrating doing a show on these meds because, man, I'm telling you, my mental acuity, my diction, my vocabulary is usually so much stronger than this and I can feel myself struggling for words that won't come. It's like me talking to a pretty girl. Just kidding. That's joking. I was just joking. Now I'm making bad jokes on these pills, too. Um, okay, last thing he said, Stephen says, this is what blew me away. Stephen wrote, lastly, I hope you'll forgive me if I have said anything to hurt you in any way, and ask that you will pray for both me and President Trump, that God will grant us mercy, forgiveness, and wisdom to do his will. Boy, Stephen, where do you get that kind of humility and grace? If I could go to the humility and grace store, I'd buy some of that. I just, ah, man, I, I like that kind of disagreement. So thank you, Stephen, for the um, for the response. And uh, I'm grateful for that maturity uh, and uh, intellectual uh, intellectual nature that you showed there. Okay, next. From Kenny. Kenny wrote, wrote in, and not mean, but definitely is challenging me. He asks about the year of Jubilee. So I am really antsy uh, socialism, and I'm very pro-capitalism. And I'm really pro-capitalism because I look at the history of capitalism since 1776. And well, that's when the Wealth of Nations came out. It's also when the Declaration of Independence was uh, was adopted. But uh, yeah, the, the Wealth of Nations and Adam Smith, when that book came out, and we started to see instituted among mankind some free market capitalist principles, what we see then is an incredible acceleration of human flourishing. So since capitalism and free markets get installed, we get the first, the first technological revolution or industrial revolution, the second industrial revolution. I guess let me say it this way. The standard of living for someone in 1700 and the standard of living for someone living in year 500 was mostly the same. Medicine and housing and transportation even entertainment, most of those parts of the economy had stayed relatively the same. Something happens in the late 18th century, in the late 1700s, that the acceleration of development goes crazy. Our acceleration in the development of engineering and in medicine and transportation and entertainment and technology and industry, something, uh, something really incredible happens to the extent that, I, I mean this, if you took someone who was living in rural Kansas 1920 
and you brought them to Greenville, South Carolina right now, just 100 years later, they would think they'd die and gone to heaven. They think they'd be in heaven. With all of the, the cool air rushing through every building they walk into, with the abundance of food and options, with the, with the incredible touchscreen computers everyone is holding in their hands, they would think they've gone to an alien planet or gone to heaven. So something happens in the late 18th century that explodes into human flourishing. Now that coincides with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment happened during that time. But also the institution of free markets happened during that time. I've also seen in my, I say it this way, a little tongue-in-cheek, of my own home continent. You know, I was born in West Africa. I was born in the Ivory Coast. And I've seen the UN and I've seen world organizations try to do poverty alleviation in Africa and fail miserably. And then I've seen Bono and his organization, Bono from U2, go to these governmental leaders and help them understand free markets and institute free market systems and free market principles and then watching some of these nations come out from poverty. Even a rock star like Bono, a liberal like Bono, he'll say it. He, I don't even think he likes saying it, but I could play you speeches from Bono where he'll say, there's not been a better anti-poverty program in the history of the world than free market capitalism. Free market capitalism has lifted some untold billions of people out of poverty. And free market capitalism has had its excesses and it's had its problems. But of all the systems instituted among man on this earth, it has been the best for human flourishing. And so Kenny writes in and he says, you seem to really love capitalism. What about the year of Jubilee? You also seem to love the Bible. And how can you love the Bible and love capitalism? You must not know about the year of Jubilee. So if you don't know about it, and you, if you've ever encountered this concept, I want to give you some details and talk through it, because I think it's actually, I mean, no offense to Kenny if, if my tone there was harsh at all. Not that my tone can be harsh at all if I even I wanted it to. I sound like a decrepit person. But for, for Kenny here, I understand the confusion, and I do want to help clarify it. So one, one more thing on Kenny is he mentioned, this specifically, I, I talked about student loan forgiveness being an immoral idea. Uh, I talked about I think it, uh, I can't remember the other thing you mentioned. Oh, he found some old stuff of mine about Occupy Wall Street and how I was very much anti-Occupy Wall Street and some of their ideas. And so he's he he's comes at me with, I mean, the Bible has this thing called the Year of Jubilee. How do you reconcile your economic thinking with the Year of Jubilee? So here we go. If you're unfamiliar, the Year of Jubilee was instituted in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament where every 50 years, the, the land that was owned by any given family, uh, that from, 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 uh, the, uh, from the land that God gave, so uh, as in, what is that, Joshua 13 maybe? I think it's Joshua 13 that God distributes the land. He says that this part of the land goes to these tribes of uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the tribes of Jacob, these are the ones that go to Dan and Gad and Reuben. And so at, the, at this every 50-year mark, that property would be returned to those tribes. And so no matter what had happened, 
in the interim 50 years in terms of economic dealings, the land would go back to those people. And so it was also thought of as debt being forgiven every 50 years, like a reset. Now, I understand reading that, how how it comes across, but I think what Kenny has here, what a lot of people have, is a, is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the year of Jubilee was. So uh, let's start with just this one idea. I think a lot of people think the year of Jubilee was a big debt forgiveness program, and it was not a debt forgiveness program. Just as an example, oh, top of my head with a bunch of chemicals in me. Let's see how I, how I do. This is primarily about land, land that God had distributed to the people. And what, what God was instituting in Israel was that no tribe was going to lose its inheritance and lose its land forever. And so let, let's say somebody who's in the tribe of Dan was in a bad economic situation and they needed to sell a plot of their land to someone from the tribe of Asher. Well, the actual deal was not a, a, a sell, a sale. The deal would be essentially a lease. So and we, we find in the Jewish tradition that there would actually be formulas based on how close you were to the Jubilee. And so you got this, this family with the tribe of, of Dan wanting to sell to the tribe of, Gasher, of Asher, and what, what they're going to say here is, well, for the, you know, the Jubilee is 25 years away, and so you've got 25 years of this field. And so there, here's the price you're going to pay us to use this field for these 25 years, knowing it's always going to come back to us. Because it's just how God set up, so that's how God set up the, the land for the tribes. It, it wasn't a debt forgiveness. It just essentially turned the economic systems of land ownership into leasing because God decided who the land owners were. There, there's this idea, I think, also, that this the idea of year of Jubilee is trying to institute some kind of redistribution of wealth, that by forgiving debts, this is... God trying to even up the economic system, but that's not really at all what was happening. There were still very, very rich people and very, very poor people in Israel, and after the every 50 years, that didn't change. The, the folks that did well and were, were able to gather to themselves wealth didn't lose their wealth. This was really primarily just about land. I mean, it's, it's not even really about income and inequality as... I think Kenny thinks it is about there being different incomes and trying to redistribute this wealth. I mean, just consider that we do know there were very wealthy Jews and, and their families would be wealthy throughout generations because they would gain a bunch of wealth through their dealings in the 50 years and then maybe after those 50 years the, the land that they had been leasing goes back to the original owner but they got to keep the proceeds of whatever they grew on that land and they would go and make more deals and and accumulate more wealth throughout throughout their effort in their industry. So it, it wasn't even a, a mechanism of making things equal in the economy or making things equal in, in incomes. And one last thing Kenny said in his email, I want to correct. It does it does seem to it seems to me that there's an an idea about private property that because there's this year of jubilee in the Old Testament. 
and land is returned to its original owners after every 50 years. That this is God's declaration that all land belongs to him. And so therefore, if governments want to come in and do something with your property, that's all good because no one really owns any property. All property belongs to God. You'll get a little bit more of this from folks misinterpreting in the New Testament uh, with the New Testament church having all things in common. The year of Jubilee actually reestablishes, reinvigorates the idea of private property because God has bestowed upon man the responsibility of some property. This goes to the core, one of the core themes of Genesis is that God creates a good world and then he makes humankind a trustee of it. He bestows upon us the responsibility to cultivate this good world that he created. And so this year of Jubilee doesn't say that no one owns private property. It's actually saying, I have bestowed upon you this property and now you must take good care of it. You must do what's best for it. And so it actually goes back to its original owner. You know, sometimes the best thing for a property owner to do is to lease it out. If they don't know what they're doing with the kind of land they have to grow certain crops or something, you know, they sell it off or lease it out to somebody who knows what they're doing. And that person shares their profits with you because they need land and they have the expertise. Maybe they have the equipment, they have the knowledge and the, and the ability, but you have the land, they don't have the land, you don't have the knowledge or the equipment. Well, that's just a good economic deal. Everybody benefits, there's wealth created. So to Kenny, the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament is not a debt forgiveness plan. It's not a call to socialism and it's not a biblical call for income equality. That's not how it works. Next, from Jody on, I think I got this on Facebook. Jody sends me a story about some churches who got together outside of a library. Looks like this is in Virginia. During one of these, I I think they're child abuse sessions, where some very bad parents take their kids to be read to by men dressed up as some cartoon version of a woman. And uh, these signs, I can't tell what they say, but the the question from Jody is, is this a thing a Christian should be doing? Is this an effective way to get our message across, holding up protest signs at these types of events? Jody also mentions holding up signs at gay pride parades and things of that sort. So a couple things. Um, probably not. I don't think it's, pro- it's probably not useful. At the same time, I don't want to discourage someone's conscience who's telling them to go do something like that. Most of us do nothing. And so the person who wants to show up to a drag queen story hour and hold up a sign that says, I mean, I mean what I said. I think that's child abuse. I think it's child abuse to take your kid. It's like an emotional and mental child abuse, but it is, it's, it's harmful to your children. And if someone wants to hold up a sign to that end, I think what they're saying is true, but uh, I don't think it's effective. The same way that I think a lot of what we do on so, like I would say the same thing about a lot of stuff on social media. It's just not effective. A lot of the the arguments and things that we say, I mean, truth is good, obviously. Let's speak the truth, but with the rest of that verse, in, I think that's Ephesians, it says speak the truth in love. Jesus says in his intercessory prayer in John 17 that the way the world 
will we'll know that we are His is that we love each other. And one of the signs of being a Jesus follower is that we are showing love towards each other and, and to the world around us. And one of the ways you can show love is by telling the truth. There's no question about that. But when it comes to effectiveness and how we get our point across, yeah, if, it, if you're coming across like the person is your enemy and you're trying to defeat them, you're probably not going to win them. I think it's an important thing for all of us to re- recognize. Whoever you think your enemy is, you think your enemy is the Democrats or the Republicans, the liberals or the conservatives, you think your your enemies are the, uh, I don't know what else, the, the capitalists or the socialists, whoever your enemies are, if you're coming from a Christian perspective, those aren't your enemies. Those are people to win, not people to defeat. Not to get the win over over them, but to win them over. That's our goal. I have more of your questions and a lot more to do when we come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. If you have stuck out with this episode this long, you're probably just like my mom or something. It's got to be only my mother listening at this point with this voice of mine. At least I know what I'll sound like at 80. All of you were out there using that face app thing. I recall a few weeks ago trying to see what you would look like at 80 years old or so. Well, I didn't use that face app, but if you ever want to know what you're going to sound like at 80, just get a terrible flu when you go to New York City and you'll find out exactly what your voice will be like decades later. All right, back to more of your your feedback. This is from Christine on Facebook. Christine sent me a Facebook message of a story out of Vermont where, I guess I'm, for time purposes, I'm just going to have to summarize this thing. There's a church in Vermont, somewhat rural, uh, that had a guy camping, homeless guy camping on there, property and he had the police remove him and this is Christine just wants my thoughts so one is I know I don't think a pastor needs to be calling the cops on a guy who's setting up a campground on his uh, on his property it doesn't appear from the story that the pastor ever went and talked to him like he just, he just called the. I think it was property. It was the property manager. I'm, I apologize. The property manager because they rent. The property manager. Property manager called the cops. Now, granted, yeah, they have a right. The pastor and the property manager has a right to have this guy removed. And admittedly, this guy has a ton of options in Vermont for other places. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, homeless shelters and things like that. But no, it's a bad look. It's a very bad look. And it's also not a biblical look. You know, forget about the p- PR, the public relations of it for a minute. For a pastor, his first, uh, his first instinct is to get the authorities involved or just to get the, get the mess of the homeless person gone. Uh, no, it's a, it's, a bad, it's a bad idea. And so uh, for, for Christine sending that story over, thank you for sending it over. Uh, that's a, that, that pastor made the wrong call. He should have tried to handle it himself come up with some kind of accommodation where you can help the poor, help the needy in that situation, and also continue to have a property that people aren't uncomfortable coming to, and then they, they can still come to church for their worship services and all that. 
right, there were three more topics I wanted to get to on the show today. Let's see how far we can get into these three. First, uh, who's Melissa? Melissa sent this to me on Facebook, including several other people, but she was the first one, about a Hillsong worship pastor, leader, songwriter guy, something Samson, Marty? Yeah, Marty Samson, who announced on Instagram that he walked away from the faith. This comes two weeks after the guy who kissed dating goodbye. I think his name is Joshua Harris. He wrote that book when he was like 20. And all of us thought at 20 we should make him the big face of Christianity for a little while because we know how smart 20-year-olds are. Now, real, really quick, I have some college students that listen to the show. Guys, I believe in you. I don't think you should lead us yet. I just, I'm, I'm going to toss it out there. I'm 33. I don't think I should be leading a lot yet. The older you get, the more you recognize all the stuff you don't know. And so, you know, at 20, we, t- we said to Joshua Harris, let's, let's make him the face of everything. And that was a terrible idea. But Joshua Harris walks away from the faith because he never had the faith. And then Marty Sampson walks away from the faith, again, because he never had the faith. This is, and this is an obvious Jesus quote here. I mean, Jesus says, you, know, you're, you, you go out from us because you were not of us. You never were one of the sheep. You were always one of the goats. But I want to get, just for a moment here, into Marty Sampson and what he wrote on Instagram about him walking away from the faith. I just want to break a little bit a little bit of it down line by line. My initial reaction was not any kind of surprise. Like I'm about to be a little bit of a punk. But guys, Hillsong is a really shallow organization. There's no theology there. There's a lot of spectacle, and there's a lot of experience, but there isn't a lot of depth. And so... When someone walks away from Hillsong, I mean, what do you walk away from? You walk away for, from, from some jitters and some chills that you had, but not an actual deep abiding faith informed by Scripture. And so here we go with his Instagram post. Marty Sampson, former writer with Hillsong, he writes this. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. What bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy and so at peace with the world. It's crazy. Okay. Can't wait to see how that ends, and that's me being sarcastic. You know, the uh, because of my sickness and all the drugs I'm on, I can't... Ah, when my brain is not sharp, it gets so, so frustrating. But the guy who's famous for saying God is dead, what he was what he was actually saying is that we have killed God in the culture and it's not actually going to work out for us. We have to find, he was actually making a call. What are we going to fill it with? What are we going to fill the hole that God left? Where's the social cohesion going to come from? And he was hoping it would come from something like uh, some kind of rationalism, materialism, something like that. And it obviously didn't happen and we're, we're suffering the loss of cultural cohesion now. And you'll have plenty of Christians who are miserable, but to this Marty Sampson, bro, you're so happy and you're so at peace with the world. What do you do with any suffering that comes? I know what I do with my suffering. And I know how I process it, and I know what its meaning is. But your happiness in this godless world, 
I do wonder how that comes. What, what, when, when a trial comes, how you're going to process that. But then, then here's the part I wanted to get to. He says, this is a soapbox, soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place? He won't even say hell, but he says to a place. All because they don't believe. No one talks about it. I'm about to be intentionally condescending. I don't like being a jerk. Sometimes it just comes out. But Marty, baby, buddy, you're not tilling any new ground here, okay? This is not exactly an intellectual revolution. What are you talking about? No one talks about it. So many preachers fall. No one talks about it. Seriously? Athanasius was talking about it a, several centuries ago. Martin Luther was doing it during the Reformation. It's headline news all the time. What are you talking about how many preachers fall? More, and then no one talks about it. We gossip about it like crazy. Marty. That's a dumb thing to say. Moreover, if your faith is affected by the ebbs and flows of other humans, then you don't have a faith that's placed on Christ. You have a faith that's placed on people. This is something I worry about even with my own, let's go with my own nephews. I don't know what stupid thing I might do. God knows what I'm capable of. I hope my, I hope my boy's faith, my nephew's faith, is in Christ alone and not in me because I'll fail them. And Marty, if your faith is in preachers and pastors and you see them fall, your faith was in the wrong place anyway. He said there in his post, how many miracles happen? Not many and no one talks about it. Well, this is a problem again in your own theology. This is what it means when you're a continuationist and you say, well, how many miracles happen? Not many. Well, one of the things with miracles is that they're supposed to be remarkable if miracles happened all the time, they would not be remarkable. They'd be a normal run-of-the-mill event. Second, you've read your Bible wrong. <clears throat> miracles, as, as a rule, both for the Old Testament prophets who would say, Thus saith the Lord, and for Jesus who came, and came along later. The purpose of miracles was validation. God was showing. The person who is speaking has my authority. I will show you they have my authority by having them act out in this miraculous way. You've misunderstood the miraculous, but moreover, you've also underestimated the miracle that is your everyday life. It's a miracle that we still spin around the sun, that we even exist, that life on this planet subsists. Life itself is a miracle that it even exists. But he says, again, no one talks about it. Marty Skeptics of the faith have been talking about it for thousands of years. You're not doing anything new here. He says, why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. Seriously, no one talks about it? Have you ever been on the internet? This is the way these do. They try to poke, poke holes. They do it poorly most of the time. Why don't you actually wrestle with what you think those contradictions are? They're not typically, well, they're not contradictions. Most of them can be cleared up just by reading the paragraph after and the paragraph before what you think you're reading. 
Some of them take a little bit more work, but not much. What do you mean no one's talking about it? This is not revolutionary criticism that you're giving the Christian faith here. But this is what I think the Hillsong group type does. They, they don't call for deep thinking. They call for feeling. And then he says, how can God be love yet send four billion people to a place because they don't believe? No one talks about it. All right. Again, although no one talks about it, there was literally a book called Love Wins a couple years ago that popularized an idea of no hell. It's been a discussion in Christianity for thousands of years. Maybe you just need to actually talk to Christians every now and then, Marty. We've been talking about it a lot. But even the doctrine of hell, this is not a a hard thing to understand. I'm not saying it's pleasant, but it's not hard to understand. If you love something, necessarily, you will have wrath towards that which hurts the thing that you love. If you love God, you love his creation, and sin mars God, and His, or at least God's creation, you will hate that. And so love requires you to hate that which harms whatever you love. This is not a hard concept to get through. So a lot of you sent me that story of his apostasy and of Josh Harris. I don't have a lot of thoughts for those guys. I'm never surprised when some folks walk away from the faith. Um, this is a normal thing because a lot of the faith, especially in America, that we get brought up on is cultural. We don't even get brought up on a real biblical Christianity. We get brought up on an American version of a Christianity that has some tangential relationship to the Bible, but it's not the genuine article. Okay, I I said I had three things I wanted to get to. I got like four minutes. Let's do our best. One other one here. I saw... I know that it's, uh, of the two, one is how our culture is coming apart and how we need to be able to love each other better. The other is about shooters uh, and guns. I think I'm going to do the shooting and the guns thing. All right, here we go. I got to thinking after the last set of shootings uh, in El Paso and in Dayton. and I, I, I guess I'm just trying to have a new conversation. I know that I'm good at the conversation that is typical in talk radio, uh, to defend the Second Amendment, to expose the reality that guns really aren't the problem, to uh, to, talk, to talk about uh, all the ways in which the gun regulations that are put forth wouldn't have prevented any of the gun crimes that we see in these mass shootings. I can talk about, and I have before, that mass shootings are actually, even though they're up, they're happening more often. You're actually more likely to die in, uh, in, in you're more, more likely to die in a, in a gun-related accident with someone you know, and you're also more likely to die in a lot of other ways than through a gun. Like, I know all the talking points. So I'm very good at them. But I started to try to come up with a new conversation. What's a, a new way to address this? And I think I did. Here's where I've landed. It is a reality that mass shootings are up. We are seeing more events of one person taking a gun or several guns into highly populated places and and shooting a lot of people and often murdering a lot of people. And I'm trying trying to figure out, as as a a statistician and as a logical person, what's different. Because usually when you can find out what's different in the scenario... You can find out what the causation is. 
And so I look at the ingredients over time, and here's what I recognize. Guns have been readily available for a long time. Even semi-automatic guns have been available easily for decades. We have people congregating in large places for all of human history. And so if we've had centuries of guns available, we've had many, many decades of semi-automatic guns available, what has changed lately to cause more mass shootings? And since I am running out of time, I'm not going to give you my theory. I'm going to ask you that question. That can be the closing question. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. But I, I look out at the culture around me, and I recognize the number of guns has not changed. The availability and the, the opportunity to commit these kinds of crimes hasn't gone up. The opportunity's not gone up. The availability hasn't gone up, but the crime has gone up. So what has changed? What is different? Since, let's go Columbine, since, what was that, 98, 99? What's been different since then that was not true before that that has caused this fundamental shift and this uptick in those, in these types of crimes? I'd love to hear from you, and I'll probably come back next week, assuming I don't die of this sickness, and I will come back and answer that question. I also want to get into next week some of these boycott movements that are coming along and how we just got to stop doing that. We got to stop boycotting each other. We got, we have to stop being people that hate each other and try to ruin each other all the time. It's not going to be good for us as a culture. Hey, I'm grateful that you listen. And I am even more grateful that you listen when I sound like this. So thank you. Thank you. You're helping the show grow. If you would share the show with others, we'll get back to sports next week. Heath and his wife, Julie had their baby boy. So congratulations to them. But We'll be back with sports next week and another new edition of the show next week. Until then, peace and love.